This is Care Plus Cures, Advancing Children's Health in Silicon Valley, a podcast brought to you by the Lucille Packard Foundation for Children's Health. Through the Care Plus Cures podcast, we share stories of triumphs and challenges by uniting patient families, doctors, care team members, and donors like you to advance transformative health care for children. I'm Sarah Davis, a donor and your host for this episode. You know, imagine two different kids, two different cities, two different kind of family backgrounds, and one needs glasses and needs to go to the dentist, and that happens, and they keep moving, and the other takes six months for all of that to get fixed. It's not equitable. That then would expand and impact their education, impact their mood, impact a lot of different aspects of their life. And that over time, multiplied by a lot of different examples, you can see that it starts to create more friction, more challenges for a child to be able to reach their full potential. You just heard from Dr. Lisa Chamberlain at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford. And as you might guess, she recognizes just how different a child's health experience can be depending on their life circumstances. She's also committed to doing something about it. In 2021, Dr. Chamberlain became the founding director of the Office of Child Health Equity within the Stanford School of Medicine's Department of Pediatrics. Her mission is simple. Reduce childhood health disparities, not just for patients we see in California, but also nationwide. In today's episode, Dr. Chamberlain and I talk about her work, child health disparities, and the realities that come with them. Can you please explain to our listeners, what is health equity? Health equity. Wow. Such a powerful idea. It's the idea that everyone has the opportunity to reach their full potential, that we have equitable outcomes across different groups. Sometimes people think of the term health disparities. That's a a common term that's thrown around. Disparities means there are differences. So we have different outcomes across different groups, be they socioeconomic groups, racial ethnic groups, et cetera. Those are differences that exist. When we talk about health equity, we talk about things that are unequal and unjust so that we know what causes these differences. We know it's a question of access. We know it's a question of access to healthcare or access to clean water or access to healthy food. So we know what the cause is, but we have differences because we haven't fixed those causes. So when we talk about health inequities, we talk about differences that are at their root, really unjust and quite fixable. It's just a question of political will. Throughout covid particularly in the beginning when kids and teens were adjusting to distance learning, we heard a lot in the news about the digital divide. How has the pandemic played a role in health inequity? COVID has really, I think, shown a spotlight on the degree of inequity that we have in our society. We know that COVID and the pandemic has affected different groups quite differently, whether you're talking about our frontline workers, the ability to work at home, how you experience school and the transition from in-person to distance learning. For different school districts, that went very differently. High-resourced school districts had a blip, and they were pretty much reconnected and moving forward with their learning. Other school districts really struggled to make sure that all their students had adequate Wi-Fi, broadband, devices that were updated, devices that were able to be connected. That whole continuum of technological connectivity was quite different. So 
we really recognized when we needed these systems, <laughs> when we needed to rely on different ways to do things, that we have really inherently very different capacity in our populations. And so COVID has really given us an opportunity to see how different different experiences are for people depending on where they live and how they live. And that does generate these different health outcomes. So I think that in many ways, COVID has exacerbated our differences and made some things worse. It's also provided us some real learning and opportunities for how we could do things differently going forward and hopefully mitigate some of the differences. So it's a very interesting time to be someone who thinks a lot about and is committed to equity. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the ways that it's exacerbated some of the differences or the learning opportunities that you've had in context of children's health? So it's been very interesting to think about the application of telehealth as an example. Telehealth is this idea that you can zoom into your doctor that you can use the computer and video connectivity to visit your physician and have a conversation about your health issues. And for many of the children that we care for, children with medical complexity, this is a really important component of their life and their family's activities is seeing these pediatric specialists here at the children's hospital. Many of our families come from very far away to spend time with us. And so when we think about the disruption that came with the pandemic, we worried a lot, like, oh my gosh, you know, are these kids going to be able to see us for a couple of weeks there? We really weren't having many appointments until we could figure out how to do things safely. And how do we stay connected to the kid who's on a chemotherapy protocol or who's scheduled for a really important heart surgery, right? These are fragile, time-sensitive situations. And so there was a lot of worry that the pandemic would make some of these health outcomes worse, even though maybe the child never even caught COVID, right? But just the system disruption would make some things more difficult. One of the interesting things that has happened as we suddenly responded and figured out how quickly to start to have visits through our Zoom systems, telehealth, etc., it was amazing how that lowered barriers to access for many of our families. So for families for whom they would have to drive two hours, no longer had to, for whom transportation was a challenge. Maybe they didn't always have access to a car. Maybe they couldn't take time off of work. Now they don't have to have access to a reliable car. They don't have to take a whole day off of work. They can use a computer to zoom in and talk to us for the half an hour that they need to and then go on about their lives. In some ways, it can reduce the barriers to care for some of our families. I think understanding which families struggle to get online and work with us, which ones don't, what are the issues of broadband or Wi-Fi or devices, how do we maximize all that evenly for everyone? And then what kinds of appointments really lend themselves to telehealth? These are active questions that we are looking at and want to so that we can make sure that everyone, regardless of where they are, the language they speak, the time that they have to come, and frankly, their preference. Would you rather come in person? Would you rather do it by telehealth? That we have all these options. So going forward, I think it's a really an exciting time to leverage all of these different modalities so that we can serve and reach all of our families equally. And how can addressing racism, social injustice, and poverty as core determinants of health impact a child for life? This is one of my favorite questions, Sarah. So I've been talking about what happens when you walk in the clinic door, right? But there's a whole context and culture that our children live in within the context of their families, their communities, their schools, etc., that 
really impact their health outcomes and life opportunities. And so we need to be able to pivot and work both within the hospital walls and outside the hospital walls in our communities, with our schools, in the policy settings, so that we can create the changes that allow children to thrive. Some concrete examples would be working with the schools to make sure that they have all the capacity they need to treat their children who have severe allergies or asthma. The schools are trained. The nurses have what they need to be able to really support our children with type 1 diabetes and different conditions. It's working with the schools to build capacity. It's also working with our community partners, the wonderful work of our food bank, our Boys and Girls Club, the YMCA, our core service agencies that help with everything from housing to transportation to legal aid. These are all community resources that buffer our families, that support our families. And when we know when we have all of those services and agencies working to put their arms around a family at a, at a time when it's difficult for their family because of something, a health condition their child might be going through, that it can really change trajectories. And so we work very hard in the Office of Child Health Equity to build those partnerships, to make sure they're knitted together, to make sure that our families know how to connect with them when they need them. For our children with complexity and also our children who aren't medically complex, but socially are struggling to thrive. These resources are absolutely critical for those families as well. We work hard both within the footprint of the hospital and our clinics and outside to create an environment where we hope all children can reach their full potential. I like that sort of bird's eye view and perspective. And I wonder if we can get a little bit more detailed. What does health equity look like in day-to-day life? And how might a child's life be different with it? And what might their life look like without it? Imagine two different kids, two different cities, two different kind of family backgrounds. And one needs glasses and needs to go to the dentist and that happens and they keep moving. And the other takes six months for all of that to get fixed. It's not equitable, right? We have different levels and how that then would expand and impact their education, impact their mood, impact a lot of different aspects of their life. And that over time multiplied by a lot of different examples, you can see that it starts to create more friction, more challenges for a child to be able to reach their full potential. Patients who are publicly insured, patients who live in predominantly in our communities of color, they don't come in as often for a wide range of reasons to be screened for vision. They will go for a longer period of time, we know, without getting those glasses. When they do need the glasses, Medi-Cal will cover glasses, but not contacts. So the chance that they can seamlessly have their vision sharpened and continue on that path of their education, which is their focus during those years to be successful, is harder. We also know that unmet dental disease, untreated, can get much worse without adequate treatment. It's hard to find a dentist that will take Dentacal. There are long waiting lists to get in. And when your teeth hurt, it's very hard to focus. It's hard to chew. It can start to affect other parts of your nutrition and life. So we really envision a world where Access to the optometrist is equitable. We envision a place where all kids can get into the dentist uh, with the same amount of waiting time, which hopefully is very short, and that then would allow us to see more equitable outcomes. Since we're in Silicon Valley, (laughs) I think there's got to be a way, there's got to be a technological (laughs) solution around this. (laughs) Yeah, I I love the idea of how can we innovate and use technology to create shortcuts and solutions to make it more of an even playing field. I think technology has such power. And I think we have to really, like the example of telehealth, 
think it through because I think there are a lot of people who very well-meaning telehealth would be a great idea. Well, yes, if we have equal Wi-Fi and broadband, right? We have equal devices. So you have to kind of imagine how access to technology could make disparities worse or better depending on how it's deployed. Because without meaning to, if you gave increased access to people who of means who can completely engage and have even better access than they had before, then you actually create more of a difference, more of a delta between the haves and the have-nots. So I think we just have to really think through what needs to be in place so that everyone can take advantage of the technology equally. Then it can be used to raise the playing field for everyone. I'm wondering. Like if you could tell us about a specific patient you've worked with and their experience. One young lady I'm thinking of had kind of a rocky start in the first and second year of her life, needed a lot of surgeries. Uh, She was being raised by a single mom. This was when I was seeing patients at Ravenswood Family Health Center in East Palo Alto. Beautiful family, a hardworking mom. She worked at a fast food restaurant and did a terrific job providing for her child. She struggled with a lot of appointments and inpatient care that her daughter needed for a few years. And We were able to get through that through leveraging our core agencies, through getting her housing support, helping to find financial ways to bridge this family, a lot of food support. We have a wonderful both formal and informal food safety net. And what I mean by that is the formal food safety net, our government programs where families can get groceries from the grocery store, as well as our informal food safety net for families that are too nervous to engage with the government on that level. They can go to our food banks, our churches. We've mapped all of those out for our families. So they can either use both the government programs and the non-governmental, or if you just want the non-governmental, that's okay. So we surrounded this family with healthy food and we're able to kind of bridge her to a point where as a four-year-old to engage in preschool like all the other kids. And the mom was so eager to go back to work. I think of them, she's doing great. She's, what is she now? Oh my goodness, time goes so fast. Eighth grade, ninth grade, and just thriving. Um, so Packard was really there for her when she needed some really intense medical interventions. And then we were able to put our arms around her in the community and, and give her the pieces that she needed out there. So it was really a continuum of caring for the whole family so that they could get through that hard time. We've talked about inequities in physical health care. But I'm curious about how health disparities play out in the treatment of mental health as well. We do not have adequate mental health services for anyone, (laughs) I would say, in our communities. It's particularly difficult for low-income families and families that don't speak English. So I ache for all families in this because I think that it's very difficult to get mental health services for adolescents, regardless of your ability to find and pay for it. And we've maximized what the pediatric office can do. It's not something I was ever trained to do, but I am now trained to help screen for and treat some of these early basic conditions of anxiety and depression so that we can try to catch it earlier. Because if we wait, it just gets bad. And if they're on a waiting list to see someone for six months, it gets so bad, then it's worse than it needed to be. So pediatricians are trying to get trained to be some of the providers in this. The schools have counseling services and trying to work with the schools to maximize that is another avenue we're looking at. So this is another place where technology has popped up. Teenagers feel remarkably comfortable saying anything to their phone and more so than I would. And uh, so counseling <laughs> through telehealth is something that has really been shown to work quite well. 
the children, the adolescents don't necessarily need to go in and sit in a room with a therapist. They feel quite comfortable zooming in and talking to someone about really personal things, uh, leveraging their phones for it. So that to me offers, again, great opportunity. We can overcome a lot of these access barriers of finding the place, driving there, parking, right? All of that is so much easier if you can do it on the phone. There's a wonderful program here. I believe you talked with Steve Edelsheim about how teens can access services through Alcove. So there's some cool new models coming online, but they can't come fast enough. I would love to see bigger picture policy changes around investing more in mental health services. Yes, we did talk to Dr. Stephen Adelsheim about his new mental health model, Alcove, made for youth and by youth in our last episode. So you can check that out at carepluscures.org. So you mentioned some of the factors that roll into disparities, and I'm wondering if we can just go into a little bit more detail on that and maybe take a step back and just think about those areas like social and economic determinants, lower income, and job loss. Right. So when we kind of think about the big social determinants of health, kind of socioeconomic factors, uh, we think of education level, income, and occupation. And when we look at studies and health outcomes, if you had to rank those three, they would be in that order, (laughs) education, income, and then occupation. And so A lot of people think, wow, I would think income would be more predictive of health outcome, but it's actually education level. So let's start with that. So we know that uh, for children, the maternal education level, the highest level of school that the mother completed is very strongly correlated uh, with how that child does. So supporting young women, making sure they get through high school, uh, going on to college, if that's part of their path and plan, we know is a great investment to support their future child. So uh, the more education a person has, the more self-efficacy they have, the more self-determination, the more options they have in terms of occupation and job options, and that translates into income. So education is a very powerful determinant of health, uh, influencer of health, some people would say. And so thinking about What do our high school graduation rates look like? How equitable are they? They're quite inequitable. So we have very high high school completion rates at Palo Alto High School, at Gunn High School, and much lower in some of our other schools. And so it starts right there. And and even the success for the kids in high school is built on how things went in elementary school. So it depends on how far you want to go back if you want to think about different kind of policy interventions. But education is is incredibly important. Education then moves right into income. So the type of job that you end up having has a lot to do with how much you'll ultimately make. And the more income you have allows you to live in a neighborhood that is safer, has less noise pollution, has less crime, has better schools, has more grocery stores available, not a food desert, has more green space, is well lit at night. So all of these factors really track to how much money you make and where you end up living your zip code. Some people will say your zip code is more powerful than your genetic code. I don't like putting those in opposition. They're both really important. But zip code does matter because it translates into all of those little examples that I gave that you can imagine how that would influence your overall stress level and your overall health. So that's income ties then into occupation. So occupation has such a powerful influence. And it's interesting, not just in the size of your paycheck, but the amount of control you have in your life. So how much control do you have in setting your schedule? What happens if you're five minutes late? If I was five minutes late today, 
we'd still be here. You wouldn't have yelled at me. It would have been okay. It's power. It's control. And uh, some types of occupations have that kind of flexibility and control and others don't. And we know that that really translates into stress and other kinds of health outcomes. And so even though they are related, uh, education, income, and occupation. I think of them, somebody put it as three birds in the same wind. So they are individual birds, they are individual ideas, and yet they dance together at some levels. It's so interesting to hear about what causes health inequities. And I'd also love to hear about strategies that work to reduce the disparities. How is Stanford specifically working on these? So a few years ago, we got very interested and motivated after talking with folks in our community about educational inequity, about how so many of our kids start kindergarten quite behind. So this is early. It's that kind of trajectory I was talking about. How far back do you go? And so we studied it. We looked at it and looked at our kindergartners in our clinics. And sure enough, only 13% were kindergarten ready. And these are bright kids that don't have access to preschool because there aren't enough spots, who don't have access to the tools of learning necessarily, books, different kinds of things in their homes. And so we work together across a group of clinics who serve the Mid-Peninsula, all of our clinics that serve children who are on Medi-Cal. So it's our county system, uh, as well as the federally qualified health systems and our teaching clinic associated with Stanford and thought, how can we reach all of our zero to five-year-olds? How can we infuse their homes with books? How can we make sure that the parents know the importance of reading and model storytelling in the waiting room? So we set up a little libraries program uh, so that whenever families come in, they can take books home with them. So just to move more of those tools of learning into the home. We had uh, students from Stanford doing storytelling in the waiting room, sitting on the floor, role modeling, dialogic reading. That even if you're not comfortable reading the book, or maybe it's a book that's not in your language, you can just talk about the pictures, you can point to things. You know, where's the bird? Where's the child? Does he look happy or sad? Just kind of these conversations about a book. So doing some of that role modeling uh, we also changed the physical structure of some of the clinics. We put up literacy murals to make it a, a warm space that the walls speak to the families. We believe in the potential of your child. We really want to just convey that to the families that it's not a bleak space. This is a rich and welcoming space on the walls with bright colors and letters and numbers and all of these things that the families can talk about. Uh, we had a campaign called Talk, Read, Sing where we give bundles of t-shirts and tote bags and things that talk about talk reading and singing to your baby and how important that is, uh, that food is for their bodies and talk reading and singing is for their brains. And they get those bundles when the babies are born. Almost all the babies are born here at Packard. And then they go to this network of clinics. So then when they go to the clinics, they get the second bundle at nine months and the third bundle at 18 months. So over the course of the first year and a half, they are hearing the same message with the same kind of materials from doctors all across from the day they were born up through a year and a half of the importance of this. They get a little CD for their cars and the families can sing. And when we talked to the families, I was like, a CD, really? The cars that have CD players and they love them. They love to you know pop those in and sing. And so instead of a car Ride being a silent time, right? The family singing and with the child. And so this is the kind of constant enrichment that the, the children need for their brains to just really flourish. Uh, so we've done a lot to try to support the early childhood and space and make sure that all kids are getting a lot of rich literacy exposure in, in those early years. There's still much to do, but we are committed as the pediatric group, a coalition of clinics 
not just to take great care of the physical health, but realize the full potential of the developmental opportunities uh, for all these children. Have you seen any results of all these practices that you've put in place? That's a great question. So we had a texting intervention that we did very rigorously study, and uh, we did a what's called a randomized controlled trial. We took the families who had three- and four-year-olds and put them randomly into two different groups, and one of the groups received uh, three texts a week for seven months, and the other group didn't. They received just no texts. That was the control group. The texts are, are wonderful little comments about as you're driving today, point out on the signs on that you pass the billboards, you pass the different letters that your child is learning. So help them find the first letter of their name when you're in the grocery store going down the cereal aisle, look for that letter. Little things that they can just build into their day-to-day life. You don't have to like stop driving your car, not go to the grocery and (laughs) take a class or something. It's like, just weave in those conversations as you're living your life, counting the items on your plate, these sorts of things. And uh, the parents really liked them. And we measured the child's development at the beginning and the child's literacy development at the end of seven months. And we had a literacy gain in the groups that received the texts. And so we were just thrilled with that. What donor support might help with some of these disparities, reducing them? Thanks for asking that question. We launched the Office of Child Health Equity last October, October of 2021, with the goal of addressing health equity in our region and nationally across three different kind of modalities, research, policy, and community engagement. So we are building up this shop and Donor support makes all the difference in the world in our ability to be able to go to scale quickly. We have had a wonderful donor who has already stepped up. It caught us off guard. It was so fast and so wonderful. And the interest that they had involved early childhood literacy. And so we've been able to guarantee that we'll be able to keep this Talk Read Sing program going for another two and a half years. Coming out of COVID, we're really excited to ramp up our little libraries again. We had to slow a lot of these things down for infection control reasons with COVID. So being able to get back up to speed as fast as possible, I think, is critical because COVID has exacerbated so many of these disparities. So coming out of it, we feel urgent and a need to kind of get these things up and running. Our ability to evaluate them, our ability to disseminate what we find is obviously critical to take things to scale. So donor support is critical. And I actually appreciate the opportunity to say thank you. During COVID, our program was so fortunate to receive a lot of philanthropic support that came through Lucille Packard Foundation from our generous community that we funneled straight into our community in the form of food, diapers, formula, basic needs, cleaning supplies, masks, things that our community asked for and needed. And we were able to take these very generous donations and just really meet basic needs. And we did nothing but that for about a year and a half. And we really pivoted during COVID. And I'm so appreciative for the generous community that exists here. It was really heartwarming and touching and and felt great to be able to support the community when literally they were coming into the clinic saying they could no longer afford diapers, that their child was wearing the last diaper they had. So we stood up diaper pop-ups. We did all sorts of things to, to help us get through a hard time of COVID. And so I'm most appreciative of that. As it comes to moving forward, we're excited to be able to invest deeply with our community partners to create these environments where We believe children will have a much greater chance to be able to reach their full potential. So donor support is critical to that success. Well, Dr. Chamberlain, as much as you thank donors for support, I want to thank you on behalf of all of the community that you serve. 
You and your team at the Office of Child Health Equity are really leading this effort to build a more even playing field. The work you're doing is just so inspiring. And I have just one last question. (laughs) Since Lucille Packard was an avid lover of nature and nature was intentionally incorporated in the hospital's design, we like to end every episode with this question, which is, what is your personal connection to nature? And does this inform your work with kids? Mm, What a great question. I would say my personal connection to nature is that hiking in this region is a big part of what my family does. We deeply enjoy being out in nature and just being in the woods and, and hiking and spending time together as a family that way. And how it influences my work. We have a wonderful program of park prescriptions. So we love to prescribe time in the park for some of our families. We know that being in green space, being outside, getting exercise outside is good, not just for your physical health, but for your emotional and mental health as well. And for many of our kids, especially with COVID and the stress levels that are so high, we know that being out in the parks is a great antidote for a lot of things. And so helping families for whom maybe it's not a second nature thing, haha, second nature, but it's not second nature for them to get out into nature. We hope to encourage that and role model that for them. Thank you so much for taking the time today and sharing with us a little bit more about your work. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about our our wonderful families. I really appreciate it. We often think of pediatricians helping kids when they're sick, fixing a broken leg, or even curing an incurable disease. But in this conversation, we've heard how doctors care for all kids, recognizing the impact that unique cultural and community circumstances have on their overall health. It is clear that through the work that we've heard about from Dr. Chamberlain today and physicians like her, pediatricians have a role to play in leveling the playing field in children's health. I'm Sarah Davis, and this is the Care Plus Cures podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Packard Foundation for Children's Health. You can find out more about the foundation's work and donate to Lucille Packard Children's Hospital Stanford at supportlpch.org. You can also follow us and subscribe to the podcast at carepluscures.org. That's care, P-L-U-S, cures.org. As a donor myself, I am proud that my donation supports care, comfort, and cures for patients at Packard Children's Hospital and beyond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening.